All right, well, good evening. It is wonderful to be back with you. Uh, really happy to be back here. Um, I am taking very few preaching and teaching engagements outside of my southeastern responsibilities, and the only ones that I take are basically my church and yours. And uh, really, so it's really grateful, really grateful to be here. I love your pastor and have loved interacting with you. So let me start by mentioning uh, one of the most interesting mission trips I ever took. I was director of the mission center at Southeastern for a number of years, and so I was on four or five trips a year. And we took a trip to North Africa. We did at least one or two of those every year. And on this particular trip, uh, we went to a country there, and my guide was a relatively young man, 35 or so at the time, and so that was about 10 years ago, so now probably a 45-year-old man. And while we were on the trip, we were traveling from the capital city of that country uh, into the mountains to share the gospel. And interestingly, when we got to the mountains, we got to a place where the cars could go no further, and we rented uh, donkeys and mules to uh, go up into the mountains. And have I told this story at all? Uh, yeah, we, they, my students took all the mules and left me with a sole donkey. Have you guys, do you know the difference between the two? A donkey is a pathetic little animal. It's so small that er, my ankles would hit a cactus every time we passed one because I would have to hold my legs out to the side because I'm 6'2", <laughs> and a donkey is, is not very big. But anyway, <laughs> we were on the way to the mountains um, of this particular country to speak the gospel. It was a predominantly Muslim country. Uh, where it was, it's against the law, formally against the country's laws to share the gospel. And uh, so this man was an evangelist in his country, but he began to tell me, not an evangelist like in the United States with you know five different suits, five different hairdos, and a, like a road show. He was uh, an undercover, underground speaker of the gospel. I mean, if he did public setting evangelism, he would just you know get killed or put in prison. But he told me, he began to tell me his testimony that he was a young man. His father was a teacher in the mosque, uh, one of the big mosques in the capital city of this country. And um, that, <coughs> so basically part of his life story is that he had memorized the entire Quran by the time he was 12. He participated in Quran recitations. Uh, students will, will do that. I've seen one actually in the middle of the uh, uh, mall. Um, so he was, a, he was an upright and devout uh, young Muslim man, and one day he came into the mosque, and his buddy called him over to the side and told him, he said, listen, you'll never believe what I got in the mail today, and uh, what he ended up getting in the mail, this young man had gotten in the mail a, a handwritten letter in Arabic telling him the gospel, and there's a man in a, another country, and I know who he is, who handwrote uh, letters in Arabic uh, sharing the gospel with people. Well, uh, young my guide, who I'm going to call Ismail, was furious. He said uh, that he wrote the man a letter. There was not a, a, a mailing address, a, res a street address, which is very smart. There was just a post office address. And he said he sent him a letter, cursed him out, threatened him to never do this again. It was a crime against Allah and so forth. And forgot about it for a few weeks. And then he got a letter in response. And he said he was not expecting what he received. And what he received is what he now describes as Christian love. And he got a gracious response, but a stubborn response. And that is that this man circled back again and spoke gospel words to him. Long story short, uh, Ismail ended up coming to Christ. This man actually ended up meeting with him, and uh, Ismail came to Christ. Uh, when Is Ismail professed faith in Christ publicly, his uh, 
the night that he had done that, his, his mom came to him in the middle of the night, told him he had to leave the house, gave him a bag with some food, told him to get his clothes and leave, that his father and his brother were going to take him to the mosque the next morning. He would be beaten and maybe killed. So he left. And when he left, he, he left his only Bible with a note in it to his brother, um, urging him to read the scriptures. I've got to go very quickly in this story, so I'll just put it this way. His brother ended up coming to Christ. His father ended up having a heart attack, perhaps in, because of that situation, perhaps not. I'm not sure. His father died very quickly uh, after he left. And now he and his brother are evangelists, uh, one of them in that country in, in uh, North Africa and the other one in a country in Europe that receives a lot of immigrants uh, from that particular country in North Africa. But their opportunities for public witness and for political engagement are so limited. It's basically two, martyrdom or keep your head down. And the point I want to make tonight is that we live in a democratic republic where we have a great amount of freedom to shape public discourse and to give public witness and to view our political interaction as political evangelism. In other words, by our demeanor and our disposition and the words, the life-giving words that we utter to give witness to Christ. And shame on us if we as Americans do not take advantage of the opportunities that the Ismaels of this world will never have. And so that's our topic tonight. How do we do that? Well, before we can talk, normally when we, we bring up politics, you know, the first thing we, our mind does is it goes to certain pet public policy issues. You know, we each have a few that we're passionate about or that we know a lot about, but we're not going to do that. We have to go all the way back to the beginning in order to understand Christianity and politics. So we're going to revisit the biblical narrative in a much more brief way than we did the last time I was here or two times ago to ask what does the biblical narrative have to say about politics? Okay, so we'll divide that narrative into creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. All right? So at the time of creation, you'll remember, we said that God created the world and over and over again affirmed that it was a good world. All right? And when he created man and woman in his image and likeness, he gave them three commands. Be fruitful, multiply, till the soil, have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply is a social command. Build families and ultimately societies. Spread across the face of the earth with image bearers who will glorify me. The second command, till the soil, is a culture-making command. Not just agriculture, but every type of culture. Take the world that I've given you and make something out of it. Bring out its hidden potentials. It's a social and a cultural command. And the third one is a political command. Have dominion. God was saying, I am the king over the world, and you're going to be my under kings, and you're going to rule over it. So social, cultural, and political command. Now, just as God created numerous types of animals, he also created different types of culture. Or I call them spheres of culture, relying on a great uh, uh, theologian, Abraham Kuyper. And uh, when we look back at creation, in retrospect, now that uh, we stand where we stand in history, we see that God created the world as the type of world that would have art and science, and education, and politics, and family, and these sorts of things, commerce, business, and so forth. And so politics is only one sphere of culture. And we would have had something like politics before the fall and even without sin. Once society grew big enough, once there were enough people, you'd have to order society, right? You have to decide who's going to drive, on, on which side of the road we're going to drive, or, and when we're going to have fall festival, and who's going to bring the pie. You know, you always have to do something to order society, even if you don't need police officers and uh, a military, you know, because there was no evil at the time. But there would have been some form of government and politics, just not like what we have now. And at the time of creation, everything was perfect. 
Humanity lived under, under God himself as king. Second plot movement is the fall. And to be concise to the extreme, um, it all got corrupted and misdirected. That human beings continued to be social, cultural, and political, but did so in, in, in ways that were bad rather than good. Or in ways that were mixed bags, always mixed with some amount of badness. And so politics as a realm is corrupted and misdirected. Now, the political realm also has to wield the sword. Because you have evil, because you have sin, you have to have police officers to arrest someone who is uh, abusing a person within their home or someone who's uh, breaking into somebody else's home to steal or someone who's threatening to take the life of other people or who has taken the life of other people. Because of the fall now, we have to have militaries to defend our country. And so the, the task of politics uh, changed. It expanded, actually. Still has to order society for its, for its common good and for flourishing, but in addition now has to restrain evil. And that restraint of evil became a very significant component because evil is so pervasive. <clears throat> so at the time of fall, God's shalom, the peace that he wanted, was broken. Third, redemption. Now, fall and redemption, these two plot moves, they run on parallel tracks together from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20 throughout the Bible. They're all side by side because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately not only gave a curse but a blessing, a promise. And that promise is that he would bring a savior, the seed of a woman, a savior born of a woman. And that that seed, that savior would crush the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel, crucifixion, but he would crush the serpent, resurrection, and the final destruction of Satan himself. And so that was God's promise of life. And this is, uh, the, I think, the aspect of Scripture that we know the best, and rightfully so. It's the one that we treasure the most because it's a precious truth that God has stopped us dead in our tracks in the middle of our own sin against him uh, while we had our weapons trained against him, that he stopped us dead in our tracks and saved us. That's a precious truth. And uh, I want to point out uh, a couple of things. That when he saves us, he doesn't just save us from our sin, but he saves us for a totally new way of life. That the salvation that Christ gives affects us in the totality of who we are, and that includes the political aspect of who we are. The realm of government and politics, it affects us or should affect us. Um, unfortunately, many Christians seem not to be affected very much by the gospel when they interact in the political realm. It's as if you can take off your Christian clothing in the political realm and act like an absolute uh, moron, (laughs) become absolutely unhinged. Um, So his, his redemption is not only from something, but for something. And his redemption extends beyond human beings to the entire created order. And we'll talk about in that in the next plot move that God is actually going to save the universe. Not every person in the world, but everything, every type of thing. Uh, you know, the fire that he's going to send in the end is a purifying fire. I think the King James translation is a bad translation in where Peter says the world will be destroyed by fire. He doesn't say destroyed. He uses a word that could mean purified or cleansed. And that makes a lot more sense theologically. So... Let me read a couple of uh, passages in just a moment. So our question right now, politically, we live in this fallen realm. Christ has saved us in the totality of our lives. Let me mention two phrases for you, and then I'm going to go to the Bible for a moment. 
The first phrase is desiring the kingdom. What we're supposed to be doing, remember the Lord's Prayer? It's not really the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. It's our prayer where the Lord tells us to pray that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying is that God will bring heaven to earth to institute his reign. That is a deeply, profoundly political prayer. That is a prayer that he will overthrow worldly authorities and institute himself as king. And he will bring a final justice, a final peace, a final order, and a full human flourishing at that time. That is a deeply and profoundly political prayer. And most Christians in the world pray that as a political prayer because they are under oppressive regimes. We have tended not to pray that as a political prayer because we haven't been under those types of of regimes. We don't understand the political nature, deeply political nature of the gospel. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And when he comes back, he's going to take care of Caesar. The second phrase that I want to focus on is between the times. We live between the times of the first and second coming of Christ. And uh, what that means is that Christ's salvation has already been inaugurated. It's already been started. He saves us from our sins and makes us his own. But his salvation has not been finalized. Because when he finalizes it, he will make us perfectly holy. And he will perfectly restore the earth and so forth. So we live between those times. And our question, question is, how do we live between those times? Let me read from... Uh, Mark 12, 13 through 17, and then Romans 13. So start with Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. It's not going to work. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? They just wanted to, they were trying to catch him on the horns of a dilemma. Apparently dilemmas have horns. And uh, they were going to catch him on one, but it didn't work. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it to him. He put it in his hand. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said, it's Caesar's. And he said, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, I think when folks read this at first, I mean, we often, our, our first thought is, okay, that means that some things in the world are Caesar's and some things in the world are God's. So there's two different realms, two different kingdoms, and the things that are, these type of things go to Caesar and these type of things go to God. That is not what this passage means. Everything belongs to God. What Jesus was saying is, listen, you live in a fallen world where the government has to tax you because you don't live under God as your, as your king fully realized the way you will on the new heavens and earth. So, since that's the case, and since God ordains government, give the government what's due to them. Give them their taxes. But don't you ever give to Caesar what is due to God alone. And that is your ultimate commitment and allegiance. That's the point of the passage. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. You can give Caesar whatever the government demands that you give him. You have to submit to the authorities. But don't you ever give Caesar your heart. Now the reason that was shocking in Rome and why it can be shocking in America is that Rome was the world's greatest empire. And the Romans thought that the story of the rise of Rome 
was the culmination and climax of human history. And that Christianity was a little bit player within that story. What Jesus was saying in response is, I don't think so. Rome is actually a bit player in the world's grand story. And the world's grand story is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And so the Caesar isn't the man who stands over and stands as the climax of the world's great story. He's a pawn, a bit player in a a story where the triune God, the God of Jesus Christ, uh, stands as the climax of the story and the God of history. Now, in this time between the times, the church is deeply significant. Let me explain two ways in which Christ's covenant is significant, politically significant. The first is that the church, as an institution, the the church that meets together and congregates on Sunday morning, that this congregation, this gathering of the church, is deeply political. Now, it's not political in the sense that you're talking about public policy issues and who to vote for from the pulpit and in your Sunday school room. Not at all. It's deeply political because it is a statement by Christians that Christ the King will one day return to rule over the entire world, and that until then, this church is an embassy of his kingdom. And we are a sign and a preview to the world of what that future kingdom will look like. And when we gather on Sunday morning and take the Lord's Supper and hear the word preached, and and are discipled and reminded of how to live holy lives to Christ, this is a sign to the world that, 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 that the King will return one day. And so the church is political as an institution in that respect. The church is not only an institution that that meets all together on a a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening, it's also an organism. And what I mean is this. The Bible talks about, um, about the church as being the body of Christ, connected to God as its as its head. And this is an organic metaphor. You know, it's a, that we're, it's a biological metaphor that we are alive. And what it means is that when you leave Sunday morning, when you leave the church institutional, you remain connected to Christ and connected to one another. Because as a church, you're in covenant with God and with each other. And so when you leave, you're still connected to one another. And when you leave and go about your everyday life, Monday through Saturday, um, your witness reflects upon Christ, but also upon each other. And so as your pastor teaches you and disciples you, and as you disciple each other on Sunday morning, it's so that you can enter into the other spheres of culture, including politics, and give a real and a true witness to Christ. Now, some of you will have more aptitude for that than others. If you're a politician or a lawyer or a political journalist or a professor of political science, then you're going to have a lot more expertise and a lot more ability to shape things in the political realm. Most of us are not those things, and we still have our own ways of shaping, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then let me read one more passage, Romans 13, 1 through 7. This is the most famous passage on politics in the Bible. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. You may have questions about that during Q&A because it raises questions about whether or not we can argue against what a president does and so forth. I've got answers. Um, Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. 
for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him uh, who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So be subject to the governing authorities. What's Paul's main point here? Paul's main point was to keep the Christians from becoming anarchists. Because they had grasped very clearly that Jesus is a, is a, is a Messiah who had resurrected and was coming back. He promised that he would come back. They understood now the political, they understood very well the political nature of his reign. And so the temptation for them was to be anarchists and to ignore the government because the only authority the government has is that God let them have some. What Paul was saying is, don't you dare do that. Respect the government. Be a model for other citizens. Now, we live in a democratic republic, which puts us in a unique situation in it, that our entire governmental structure is set up so that we will give pushback when we think, so, think things are going wrong. And so we are set up to speak and to speak whenever we want to unless things change, and to, to get in there and to help shape our own country. And so what a great responsibility, what a great privilege. The final plot move, new creation or restoration, is that Jesus will return one day, and he will renew and restore his good creation. He will, re, he will institute his kingdom and establish it in totality so that there's no more sin, no more pain, no more sickness. And so the political realm will be entirely his. He will rule it, and we will rule underneath him. So that's a brief tracing of the biblical narrative. Uh, now what I want to do is I want to talk about one, two, three things. Okay. First, I want to talk about the gospel as a public truth. Now think with me for just a moment. The Bible talks about religion being heartfelt. More than 800 times the Bible t relates religion to the heart. What it means is, you know, the heart is the innermost recesses of who a person is, and it sort of distills and represents the whole of who we are in the deepest parts of who we are. So religion is personal because it is heartfelt. But because it's personal does not mean that it's private. Because it's personal, it actually is very public. Uh, because religion is heartfelt, it radiates outward into everything that we do publicly. Our religion is what is, what is ultimately most important to us, Right? And if it's not, if, God, if the God of Jesus Christ is not what's ultimately most important to us, it means that we've taken on a different God, sex or money or power. And that God is most important. But whatever is functioning as our God and Savior is what is most important to us. And so obviously it affects everything that we do. It shapes our decisions, our thoughts, our actions, our words, all of these things. So religion is a very public matter and it cannot be privatized. Even though for the past two to three hundred years, in the West, we've attempted to make it private. Keep your religion out of things. Don't discuss it in public. Another thing I would say under the gospel being a public truth is that Jesus is a cosmic king. He rules over everything. And so why would you take his rule and, and, and allow it to be everywhere except the realm of politics? So you want to bring his rule appropriately into the realm of politics. We want to leverage our Christianity to shape public life, but not in theocratic ways. Let me explain what that means. You hear the word, you may hear the word theocracy. Every once in a while, if you're often, if you're listening to CNBC, and sometimes if you're listening to Fox, 
um, a Republican candidate, usually, um, in previous days it was Democrats, now it's Republicans, Republican will be accused of being a theocrat. Almost never is that true. That's just a bad word. Sometimes it is. Here's what a theocrat is. There are a few of them that exist, but they are a very exotic species in uh, the wildlife of the kingdom come. Um, a man named J. Roussos Rushduni became one, and if you were given a name like that, you might become a theocrat. A theocrat is just somebody who thinks that we should, uh, that, that, that we should institute the Bible as the law of the land. Some theocrats think that we should take the Old Testament Torah and make it the constitution and the law of the land. Others think that the church as an institution should uh, rule over uh, the, the political structure itself, and we think that's inappropriate. That's very bad exegesis and application of the biblical text, and that that's not the case. That the, church, the church and state have different functions. So we don't separate religion and politics, but we do separate church and state. Those are not the same two things. We don't ever want the institutional church to rule over the government. God didn't ordain it that way. The church doesn't have the competence to do that. The church has no idea what to do to rule on, on most public policy issues, and it's not its calling anyway. So we don't want the church to try to rule over the state, and we don't want the state to try to rule over the church. The state has no business and no competence in, in judging uh, uh, matters of religion. And so we want them each to swim in their own lanes. But the question of church and state, these two institutions, is very different from the question of religion and politics. Because we do want to bring our Christianity into any conversation we have and any vote that we take. The gospel in a diverse society. You'll notice in your notes that I've got. So here's, here's let's talk about diversity for just a moment. And one aspect of diversity is going to be very tricky for us as Christians. And we've got to be able to navigate it well. The other one's not so much. So there are all types of diversity in the world, and God intends for those types of diversity. He created, instead of creating one type of animal, he created numerous types of animal, animals. I get a kick out of watching YouTube videos with my young children, six, five, and, and two, uh, teaching them about animals. I mean, when I was a kid, you had to go to the zoo, or maybe you'd check out a book from the public library, but we can actually see YouTube videos of any animal in, in the kingdom, and, and so they think it's so funny to watch a baboon, you know, or to watch a kangaroo hopping, or so amazing to see a bear. Think about it for a moment. The amount of variety that God created, it is amazing. He could have created the world in only one color, or shades of a color, black and gray and white, but instead he gave us a whole spectrum. So that in the spring, when the flowers bloom, that they pop in our eyes when we look at them. He could have created only one taste, so that everything tasted the same, like cauliflower or something, you know, but he didn't, thank God. We have all of these different tastes. We have cheer wine and Mountain Dew and uh, uh, ribeye cooked to a medium with uh, crushed black pepper on it. You know, we have all of these different uh, tastes. I, you know, I reveal my hand a bit too much, maybe. Um, um, uh, he created different types of people, different personalities. I mean, that's a good thing. I thank God I didn't marry somebody with the same personality as me. I really irritate myself regularly imagine how just awful it would be that my wife would have the same personality as me we would despise each other uh, my children i'm glad that all my children don't exact act exactly the same you know they they're different and that's part of the beauty of it so diversity is good it's not bad and christianity is the only religion that can really explain diversity and how it all holds together in one and the reason we can is because we have a god who is three in one and god created the world so there'd be different spheres of culture 
art and science and education and business and, and all of these things, and so that's good. There is one type of, of diversity that is not good. We have to make a provisional peace with it right now, knowing that one day God will destroy it. And that diversity that we have to make a provisional peace with is uh, religious and ideological, religious diversity. Basically that there are, uh, the human heart points itself in all sorts of directions. Some human beings' hearts are pointed true north toward God in Christ and others are pointed toward other gods. And that type of diversity we have to make a provisional peace with but never a final peace. Because in a a sense of a final peace, we don't ever want that to be the case, do we? Do we want there to be hundreds of millions and billions of people whose hearts are pointed away from Christ, some of whom explicitly hate him and reject him? No, no, we would never make a final peace with that. But we do make a provisional peace with it. It's the nature of the gospel that we have to. We can't coerce belief, can we? We can't force people to believe in Christ. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is freely given and freely received. It's embraced in faith rather than under coercion and force. So we have to make a provisional peace with it. That's why I love the fact that I live in a democratic republic where theoretically we've got full and robust uh, religious liberty. And that's why we have to make room for people who don't worship the God of Jesus Christ and within reasonable limits let them worship and express their belief unless it causes clear and present uh, danger to the public good. You know, if you've got a Satanist who wants to offer sacrifices of uh, puppy dogs, then, uh, you know, you don't let them do that. Or if you've got a, uh, a religion that uh, believes that you should uh, kill other people in innocent blood. You know, I mean, obviously there are places where you draw the line, but, but we need to let other people practice their religions. It's easier for us to talk about religious liberty when it's our own religion, but it's very difficult when it's about other people's religion. We've got to let atheists say whatever they want to say in public. If in return, we're going to be able to... S- give our own witness in public. And so this, this type of looking at diversity is, in, in government terms, it's called principled pluralism. And that means that we should allow people to live according to their own ultimate principles. As far as reasonably, we can let that be the case. And so then the final point, uh, and there are six subpoints under the final point, lest ye be too happy. Uh, the church as a formation center for public righteousness. So the church is a formation center for public righteousness, not just private righteousness. Church doesn't just shape you so that in private you can love Jesus and keep him teeny tiny Jesus in your heart. The church shapes you so that uh, you will let him loose and unleash him everywhere you go. There's a story about a little girl walking on the beach, asking her dad if Jesus is so big, then... How can I, you know, receive him in my heart? And how can he dwell in me? And his dad, the dad responded something to the effect of, he's so big so that when he dwells in you, he's just busting out all over. And so I think it's a great picture of what our Christianity should be like, that it's uncontainable, that it is overflowing out of us. Six points. Number one, we should seek the good of the city. Jeremiah 29, 5-7 teaches us that we should not seek only our own interests, but also the interests of those around us. Now think about this for a moment. This is a difficult truth to want to obey, and it's an equally difficult truth to know how to obey. 
it means that if we are in the majority vote in a country, we shouldn't just get whatever we want as the majority. It means that the majority vote in a country should seek the solution that is best for everybody involved. I think there are probably a lot of ways in which we have failed and failed miserably at that. We're supposed to seek the good of the entire city and not merely our own tribe. Now, you can do that from within. Uh, I think we have people honestly trying to do that from within both major political parties in the United States and the dozens of other small parties. So I'm not pushing anyone toward a particular party when I say that. I'm not saying people automatically assume that I, if we're seeking the good of, of uh, those who are financially disadvantaged, that I'm encouraging a heavy redistribution of wealth. I'm not. For me, I think that's actually bad for everybody, that all ships sink with the tide, lower with the tide in that situation. What I am saying is we have to genuinely seek the good of the whole country, the whole city. <clears throat> Number two, we need to live realistically. You can circle the word realistically there because that's what I'm emphasizing. In a time between the times. So you need to be realistic. We live in a fallen world and no political leader can be our savior. No matter what he promises to make great again. Or to give hope. Just to refer to two, Obama and Trump. No one can be our savior or no other politician. Put anyone, anyone's name in there. Politics is not Messiah. Only Christ is Messiah. So we shouldn't expect more than we can get. You shouldn't expect to get your way all the time. You shouldn't expect to be able to do politics without compromises. Are you upset with politicians for compromising? Well, if they made bad compromises, yes, but it's the whole point of politics is to compromise. You can't govern without compromise because we live in a fallen world. You want good compromises, not bad ones, but I mean, it's absolutely insane to expect to have politics where there's no compromise. We live in a fallen world. It's part of it. But on the other hand, so some people tend to view politics as savior, right? Invest it with messianic hopes, and you're only going to be disappointed. On the other hand, you have folks who seem to have no interest, and they say things like, well, politics is not savior, so I'm not going to be involved in politics. And so I would come back and just say, well, uh, even it, politics may not be savior, but it's a something, and it's something good. God created it as good, and he saved us in the totality of who we are, and why would we handicap our witness by not giving witness in the political realm? And then the third uh, point here is that we should be shaped for public righteousness and civility. Now, even a person who has only the dimmest spark of critical reflectiveness, even that person can understand that we need some civility in our public discourse in the United States, right? We have a toxic public discourse right now. Where a vast majority of our country, it seems, uh, maybe not a vast majority, at least a large portion of our country in both parties, think that it is okay and take delight in misrepresenting the people with, with whom they disagree, demonizing those people, making them thoroughly bad, refusing to recognize the good that that person does, even if they disagree with nine-tenths of what that person does. Fundamental inability to be civil. Now, we've had different levels of toxicity in the United States. We've, it ebbs and flows. In our history, we had a vice president who shot 
another politician. That's relatively uncivil. Counts, doesn't it? Is uncivil. We had a congressman, Roger Griswold, unrelated to Clark Griswold, I'm told, who uh, took his cane and beat another congressman, Matthew Lyon from Vermont, around the head in the middle of a session of Congress. And I think that's pretty bad. But it ebbs and flows, and we've had a relatively civil public debate until recently, and it's gotten worse again. I don't even feel like mentioning it. We all know. I mean, unless you live in a cave, you've, you've seen some of it. Civility doesn't mean softness. In the Bible, when we talk about being civil, we're talking about being representatives of Christ. We can be tough, but our toughness is always shaped by our Christianity. You can be tough and not demonize your opponent. You can be tough and not lie about him by misrepresenting his views and making them look worse than they, than they really are. And so forth. Anytime I talk about civility, a public blog or a, a news outlet, the, the comment chains go crazy. And uh, people on the right mainly uh, start basically cursing at me, using all caps and exclamation marks and you know how people who are angry on the Internet do. And, uh, uh, yeah, just uh, cursing at me for it, for urging civility, because they say we're in the middle of an all-out war, and then usually there's a bunch of expletives about Obama. And, uh, and so my point is that it would be deeply and profoundly ironic and ugly if the people who speak a gospel of grace did not interact publicly, even when they were being tough, did not interact in a gracious manner, right? Gracious doesn't mean soft. Um, number four, we need to take a long view and a broad view. The long view. We cannot put all of our hopes in short-term political activism. When you do that, you lose. You can put some of your hopes in that. Short-term activism is okay, but if you put all of your hopes in it, you become the angry people who are yelling and sweating and shouting in the public square and you won't shut up. Imagine a guy walking into the public square and who sh just shouts for 12, 12 hours straight all day long. Even if you agreed with a lot of what the guy said or even all of it, you don't want to go anywhere near the public square. It's just obnoxious. And so when we put all of our hopes in activism and we're just yelling all the time, basically it's the way it's received, we lose and it, we wouldn't win anyway. So we have to have short-term activism, but a longer-term strategy. To give you a quick hint, we could talk about this later if you all want to, I think the long-term strategy is to teach our young people to value all the different spheres of culture and to bring their Christianity into all of those spheres as public witnesses. And when you do that, the plausibility structure for the gospel is all the much greater. When you have people who are professors and teachers and uh, businessmen and uh, factory workers and lawyers and politicians, and truck drivers who all are giving witness to Christ in their stations in life. Then when you try to do something in the political realm, you've got a vast network of people all over the place who have borne good witness to Christ. That's the long-term strategy. And it's also the broad view. Instead of just politics, it's every other sphere of culture. Imagine if we had invested 50 years ago instead of withdrawing from Hollywood, withdrawing from uh, public universities for the most part, and so forth. What if we had invested in those sectors? What if we had told our 
children that to be creative and imaginative, to make movies and to make music is an amazing and a good thing, so shape it toward Christ. What if we had told them that to do serious intellectual work and to become a professor and an author is an amazing and a good thing? And it's every bit as honorable as a, what's the so-called professional ministry vocations. What if we had done that? And what if we had people in Hollywood right now and uh, people in the public university system? And there are people in the public university system, but there could be th- that many more. What if they were all standing with us on issues that were so important to us right now? It would be all the more powerful. Number five, choosing between thick and thin. There are a couple of different ways to make your case for something publicly. There's a thick way of doing it and a thin way of doing it. The thick way of doing it is making your argument with a full arsenal of everything you've got. You let everything out there. If you're making an argument for pro-life, you bring your Christianity into it, you bring everything into it. And often that's the best way to go, but sometimes you can make a thin argument. It's thinner. It's not as... You know, the thick argument's like a sirloin steak. A thin argument's like a wafer. So religion is thick. It's full-bodied. It's robust. All of your beliefs and commitments go into your argument. A thin argument you use provisionally to accomplish a specific purpose in the moment. So if I'm standing in front of a group of people and I think there's a, I can accomplish a short-term good by keeping that thick particularity out of the equation for the moment, I can make a thin argument just based on some sort of common human reason or common interest. And that's okay. I'll give you an example of this when we come back from break. And then finally, number six, politicking in the pulpit or not. So there's a, one way to politic in the pulpit, and then there's a lot of ways not to. The main way to politic in the pulpit is to declare that Jesus is Lord, and by implication, Caesar is not. So if you lift up Jesus very high as king, then it becomes clear that he's the ultimate king, and there's no politician and no leader who is higher than him or that usurps his kingship. What pastors are not qualified to do is to make pronouncements on a broad array of policy issues. There are some policy issues where you can draw a direct line from the Bible to the issue. I think pro-life is one of them. Um, But there are many other issues where you can't. Can you imagine your pastor saying, all right, we're going to have to rally together congregation and really put our flag in the sand on the wastewater treatment option, we need to choose option C. We need it to be on the west side of the east side of the west side of the city, not the east, because our church is on the east. No, I mean, you just we, we don't do that sort of thing because we, that's not what the church is called to do, nor does the church have the competence to make, you know, pastors not trained to make uh, wastewater water treatment. I don't think you are. Have you done a degree in it? No, didn't look like you had. Um, So, uh, politicking in the pulpit. In conclusion, before we take a break, let me read, or let me say something for a moment, and then I'm going to read a quote. Um, Because of Christ Jesus, we are set free to do politics with both humility and confidence. We do it with confidence because Christ is king, and we want to be a preview of him and an ambassador for him. But we do it with humility because we're not the king. The realm of culture, as dark as it may often seem, will one day be raised to life, made to bow in submission to Christ. Christ will gain victory and restore the earth, but it will be his victory rather than ours, so we remain confident but humble. That's a quote from my book, but what I really want to do is read a quote from a man named Leslie. Like a boy named Sue. A man named Leslie Newbegin. Um, And he says, and I quote, 
The point is that a transformed society is not our goal, as great as that is. It's not our ultimate goal, transforming America, or even transforming America. That's great. We would love to do that, but it's not the greatest goal. Our goal is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, a perfect fellowship in which God reigns in every heart, and His children rejoice together in His love and joy. And though we know that we must grow old and die, that our labors, even if they succeed for a time, will in the end be buried in the dust of time, yet we are not dismayed. We know that these things must be. But we know that as surely as Christ was raised from the dead, so surely shall there be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And having this knowledge, we ought as Christians to be the strength of every good movement of political and social effort because we have no need either of blind optimism or of despair. And I think that is the note that we sound, that we can stand in public as believers with confidence in Christ and the gospel and manifest um, neither despair on the, one, on the one hand or wild optimism on the other, have humility and confidence at the same time because our confidence is in Christ rather than in the government or the voice of the people. So that's our brief, uh, inter- not brief enough, introductory talk. I always go over time. It's one of my personality flaws, but I like to honor my personality flaws because without them I wouldn't have a personality. So um, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, I'm going to um, treat one public policy issue and show you some things that we can do um, to, to honor the Lord on that particular issue as a way of illustrating everything that we've said so far. And then we'll do uh, Q&A. So let me hand uh, back to the pastor so he can tell us uh, what to do. All righty. Uh, I see that probably um, probably no more than 10% of the people fled the premises, so they didn't have to listen to the second half. So I'm happy about that. Maybe everyone stayed even. So thank you for coming back. Um, I want to do two things quickly before we do Q&A. One is I want to read a list of 10 reminders about Christianity and political parties. May I do that? It'll be pretty quick. I didn't know that I had it with me, but it's a little blog post I wrote up years ago, and it still think it's a pretty decent uh, way of helping us understand how, as gospel people, we transcend, even though we may be committed to a particular political party, we also transcend it, in a way. Their ultimate allegiance is to Christ rather than the GOP or the DNC. Um, And then what I want to do is treat one particular issue, and that is the pro-life issue, as it applies to the question of abortion, to try to talk through what our public witness might look like or should look like, in my opinion. So 10 reminders first, very quickly, about Christianity. When I first wrote this, I said 10 reminders about Christianity and the Republican Party, because almost everyone that I know is a registered Republican, but it applies to either party. First, as Christians, our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ rather than to any political party. That doesn't mean that we can't join a party or even throw ourselves behind it or even help found a political party, but we have to find ways of communicating and really and truly believing that our primary allegiance is to Christ so that people get that. If not, then we look like a special interest group and Jesus looks like a pawn. 
And, and that's, an, uh, that's an awful situation. I think it's a situation in terms of public perception that we're in right now. Number two, the gospel often defies traditional socio-cultural and political categories such as Democrat and Republican. I mean, think about it for just a moment. How could our Christian convictions align entirely with either party? If they do, that's a pretty neat trick and a historical coincidence, right? Maybe mostly, but entirely in every way with every plank or with every position that a particular presidential candidate from a party holds, that would be very rare. So as gospel people, we want to be able to be committed to a party, I guess, uh, but also to be able to critique it as gospel people. You know, I think this election cycle, so I'll just use Republicans as an example because I'm a registered Republican. I've voted Republican in every presidential election. Um, it's a very good chance I will not. I'll, there's a very good chance I'll register a protest by writing, writing in a candidate during this one. Um, but there are people in the Republican Party, I think a large swath, uh, since the Reagan Compromise, who view evangelicals as useful idiots. And we're becoming less and less useful, and pretty soon we're just going to be idiots. And so I just think we need to be careful who we're in a full embrace with. We can be committed and work within a party, but our allegiance is to Christ. And we've got to find ways of communicating that. Number three, the gospel reframes both Democratic and Republican agendas. So even if we agree with the party line, we frame it differently, right? Because we see it in light of the gospel rather than merely a political argument, political uh, uh, construction. Number four, the gospel reframes the other. And by the other, I mean someone who is different than us in whatever way, whether it's uh, uh, just a, a difference in income, skin color, or maybe even a difference that has to do with the sin issue. The gospel reframes the other. We love our neighbor even when he is different from us and even when he is our enemy. Love is better than tolerance. Tolerance means I can hate you and despise you, but I'll tolerate you. What the gospel says is I will not hate you. I will love you. So it's much stronger, much better stuff. Love should translate into how we argue and debate political opponents, should translate into sound economic policies, and in the way we communicate those policies, that we communicate them in a way that it becomes clear that we love, that this is done out of love or desire for other people to flourish. <clears throat> Number five, the gospel reframes sex. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within marriage, and we will love those whose sexual life patterns are different than ours. So we can disagree, and we can draw, we can take tough stances, but we need to do so in a way that doesn't communicate whatever is the opposite of love. Number six, the gospel reframes money. Money is neither our savior nor our security. We tend to idolize money either because it's a savior, it buys things for us that makes us happy, or it's our security, and that's for those of us who are savers instead of spenders. The spenders, money is their savior. For the savers, 
money is, money is their security in a way that only Christ should be our security. And so Christians should be radically generous uh, to those who are economically weak. Now, there are differences of opinions on how to be radically generous, and I think the radical generosity is better done through society's mediating institutions than it is through radical redistribution of wealth. But however it is that you argue, uh, make sure you're being radically generous, at least on the personal level, and that you're working toward that on the public level in whatever, whatever way that would look like. Number seven, the gospel reframes power. So we must refuse to use our power to exploit other people and promote ourselves. And we must use our power to love other people and decenter ourselves. That's a tough one. But that's the I mean that's the nature of the gospel. That's a gospel pattern of living. Number 8. The gospel reframes life. We value life because only God is the giver of life. <coughs> So we do not take the life of the unborn on the one hand or rush quickly to war on the other hand. Not saying that we don't ever go to war. I'm not a pacifist and I don't think God wants us to be pacifists in a falling world. I think he wants us to have a pacifistic spirit, a peaceful disposition. But um, I think in a fallen world we have to go to war sometimes. We never go to war with delight. Number nine, the gospel reframes the environment. On the one hand, we reject the idolatrous worship of earth where uh, taking care of the earth is made into a religion and a way of salvation, almost an eschatology. But on the other hand, we want to re uh, reject the idolatrous destruction of it where the earth is nothing but something to be trashed and used. It's actually God's good creation. Why would we trash God's good creation? Number 10, the gospel... A gospel-centered church, a church that can't be viewed as a special interest group uh, in lockstep uniformity with a, with a Republican or Democratic political party. A gospel-centered church breaks the culture's ability to classify and dismiss the church as beholden to a political party. Easily classified, categorized, and dismissed when our, we are so closely aligned that people can't tell the difference between the church and the political party. So those are ten reminders about Christianity and the Republican Party. So now let's take an issue. So earlier we talked about the fact that political involvement is good because God created it. And that the gospel is a public truth that it affects how we approach public policy issues and how we approach politics in general. And then we, we talked about these, these things... Um, these six things, I think, that the church should instill in us as a formation center for public righteousness, seeking the good of the city, re living realistically in the time between the times, taking a longer and broader view, choosing thick and thin. I think a good case study for us is abortion. So let me work through it. I'm going to try to do it and everything in 10 minutes tops if I can. Um, so in 1973, the year before I was born, Roe versus Wade was enacted. And Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, claimed that she'd been raped. Um, and SCOTUS ruled that the Texas laws against abortion were unconstitutional because they denied a, a right to privacy. They divided pregnancies into three trimesters. And although they did not rule for abortion on demand, they set the stage for it. 
and this was an act of raw judicial power where a right was created out of thin air by a majority in the Supreme Court who bypassed the legislature and bypassed we the people. And this has happened again in the Obergefell v. Hodge case where the judges decided that the people could not be trusted to vote on this issue and so they created something out of thin air that was unconstitutional as a way of bypassing the people. So how do we respond to this? Um, well, one of the ways we respond is by giving a <coughs> full, thick argument, a fully Christian argument for why we are pro-life. And the reason we give the full argument is because we want to, people to be able to know Christ Jesus. And we want to, them to know that that is the ultimate reason we take the pro-life position. And that our love for the unborn has something to do with him. So we want to be a witness to him in, a, in an explicit way. But it also allows us to be more precise and, uh, and stronger in our reasoning, to give more reasons. And so we could begin, uh, if we're giving biblical truths, with Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, that we as human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And that gives us a, a great... Dignity and a great humility. The great dignity is that we're created in God's image and likeness. We're, we're special. The great humility is that we're not God. Um, we can uh, remind people, I mean, an easy one, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You know, and so when God um, sent his son uh, for his blood to be shed on our behalf, it's on the behalf of babies in the womb, as well as on behalf of babies that were born. And so Christ's love uh, was given for, for every category of humanity, not just those who are now outside of the womb. And there, there are lots of other passages that we could give, and I've got a number of them here. I think we know those. So um, the other thing we can do is we can give thin argumentation for our, for our view. And let me give a few, some examples. Now the examples I'm going to give, I'll give like, six or eight or ten things that we can say when we're arguing for a pro-life position, but there's literally a hundred that I've got written down. So I'm only given a small fraction. But I think uh, one, one thing that we can do is we can show, this is what Francis Schaeffer used to do. He used to, I think we talked about this last year, his, his apologetic strategy was to take the roof off of somebody's worldview and let the, the realities of life beat in upon them as they stu stood naked and exposed before reality. Let the weathers and the storms of life to, to, to show that their worldview couldn't handle it. So to, to give an analogy, I think one of the things you can do was when society takes a wrong direction is to show them all of the negative consequences that will stem from this, that are stemming from it and will. To explain to them why the loving thing to do is to protect babies in the womb. So let me list some reasons that could be given. I'm going to start with an obvious one. It hurts the baby. So um, it was argued early on that it didn't hurt the baby, but now that we are able to see what happens to the baby, we see that they're in a horrible amount of pain until it's over with. And so it, it hurts uh, the baby. I would say this, that an unborn child in America today enjoys less legal protect protection than an endangered species of bird in a national forest far less. And I would say that the number of babies that have been aborted is uh, the reasonable estimate is 60 million now, which is more, I think, casualties than we've had than all of our world wars combined in the 20th century, if, if, I, if I'm right about that number. But number two, it hurts the woman. How does it hurt the woman? 
lots of ways, aside from the fact that, that she has going to have to deal with having taken her baby's life, um, you know, just with the, the, the spiritual, emotional pressure of that um, and the guilt. Aside from that, abortion encourages widespread male irresponsibility and predatory male sexual behavior because a man can now kind of do whatever he wants to with very little consequences. You, if there's a baby, you can, you can get rid of the baby. Number three, it hurts the man. There are many men, you know, fathers have been dehumanized and demoted through uh, America's process because a man doesn't even have to be consulted and it's his, it's his baby as much as it is the woman's um, because a baby has been redefined as a disease according to the Supreme Court of the United States, um, a sickness, and so a woman can have the tumor removed if she wants to and doesn't have to ask her husband or anyone else. A, a teenage girl doesn't have to ask her parents. And so the man is harmed in that a man can find out 10 years after an abortion that his child was killed and he would have wanted to take care of that child on his own even if the woman he had the baby with didn't want to. So it hurts the man. It hurts marriages and families for these all these same same reasons. It marginalizes uh, the father and uh, or hurts the woman because the man pressures her, forces her uh, into having an abortion. Once again, the widespread male irresponsibility and predatory behavior. It hurts democratic government is another reason. America claims to be a law-governed democracy. But anytime you have a supposedly law-governed democracy that is okay with killing innocents, uh, you no longer have a law-governed democracy. It is very rare to find a society that will kill its weakest. And the weakest of the weak is a baby in the womb. The womb should be the safest place in the world. And in the United States, it's the single most dangerous. It's more dangerous than being in the military. Far more dangerous than being in the military is to be in the womb. It undermines the premise of American democracy that we're uh, created equal and that there's justice for all. Because a baby in the womb is not equal and there will be no justice for that baby. It hurts the other spheres of culture because you now have polarized, you have polarization among teachers, lawyers, scholars, and especially medical professionals on the issue. It hurts mediating uh, institutions. It hurts society at large because it erodes the moral foundations of our civic community. It's increased our virtue deficit, or our vice surplus. It coarsens public life. It encourages people to think that they have a problem, a personal problem, that if it really bothers them, then it's okay to use violence to solve it. So what is the path forward? So let's say we make that argument and somebody says, okay, some people are won by the thick argument, a few people are, a few people are won by it, a few are won by the thin argument. Let's say that you get a little bit of traction. What is it that you want to do if the Lord gives your words and actions some favor? Well, I think you want to seek legal reform and cultural renewal, both of those at the same time. So you want to seek legal reform through the courts. We have that option in the United States. And I think Christians have been working for legal reform. Their entire organization's dedicated and committed to that one issue. 
And then we want to seek cultural renewal. And so that means not just the inner renewal of people's hearts, but the outworking of that renewal in social and cultural structures and institutions. We want to emphasize and strengthen the alternatives to abortion. I think if we are unwilling to adopt, not every single family, but if the Christian community as a whole is not known as a community that adopts children, then our pro-life argument is going to have less effect. A lot less effect. So we need to make sure there are lots of options for women who are under lots of stress or in awful situations that would make them consider an abortion. We need to renew the moral link between marriage and sexual expression. Everything is against us when it comes to that. Nearly every television show. I tell my wife, anytime we're watching a TV show, it gets obnoxious that I say this, but I always just uh, sort of laughingly predict that whatever two characters will be having sex within a few episodes, and they will, um, because the, the link between marriage and sex is, is just torn asunder in our country. That sex is just a, a freedom that people participate in. But God, God linked it to marriage because it's a profoundly uniting endeavor that it unites physically and emotionally and, and is meant to be practiced within marriage. We have to learn to exercise the art of democratic persuasion. Oz Guinness talks about this in his new book, excellent book called Fool's Talk. I mean, it is really good. Recovering the lost art of persuasion. And we have got to learn how to persuade. We don't remember how to persuade because we've been in the majority for so long. Judeo-Christian morality has been hitched up, not entirely, but for the large part, to our country's uh, legal apparatus. And we have not, we don't know how to persuade. So what we do right now is we get angry. We yell at people and tell them that we have a right to have the laws the way they used to be. I mean, we can do that, but I mean, if we're looking for an effect, we're not going to get a good effect out of that. We must seek the constitutionalization of the right to life for the unborn. And then finally, we must appeal to equality and justice for all, including those who are not born. I think I've got a quote that I want to read. If you'll let me find it for just a moment. It's by uh, Richard John Newhouse, who is the editor of First Things and one of the champions of the pro-life movement. By the way, he, you know, he was, he's got an interesting life story. I mean, he's passed away now, so he's Baptist now, but... Um, I need to stop making jokes. I'm going to offend everybody in the room before the evening's over. Um, but uh, uh, Newhouse, early on, marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He was one of the movers and shakers in the Democratic Party. He was on the who's who's list for any dinner invitation. He was a golden-tongued golden child. And when Roe versus Wade happened, he could no longer remain within... Uh, I mean, he actually, I think, remained a registered Democrat but voted Republican for the rest of his life and worked on a, for the pro-life cause. Um, let me read you, I want to read you a quote, an extended quote about abortion that I just have found stirring, and that'll be our sort of end, end note for this before we do question and answer. Um, so he starts out by talking about the fact that Christian's hope is for the Lord's return when there'll be no more tears and, will all, and when all things will be made new. And, um, and then he says this. It's two block quotes. The first block quote. That is the horizon of hope. 
that longing for the resurrection, the making of all things new. That is the horizon of hope that from generation to generation sustains the great human rights cause of our time and all times, the cause of life. We contend and we contend relentlessly for the dignity of the human person, of every human person, created in the image and likeness of God, destined from eternity for eternity. Every human person, no matter how weak or how strong, no matter how young, or how old, no matter how productive, or how burdensome, no matter how welcome or how inconvenient. Nobody is a nobody. Nobody is unwanted. All are wanted by God and therefore to be respected, protected, and cherished by us. Second block quote. We shall not weary, we shall not rest, until every unborn child is protected in law and welcomed in life. We shall not weary, we shall not rest, until all the elderly who have run life's course are protected against despair and abandonment, protected by the rule of law and the bonds of love. We shall not weary, we shall not rest, until every young woman is given the help she needs to recognize the problem of pregnancy as the gift of life. We shall not weary, we shall not rest, as we stand guard at the entrance gates and the exit gates of life, and at every step along the way of life, bearing witness in word and deed to the dignity of the human person, of every single human person. And so I think that is the rallying call for us as believers. It's a gospel opportunity uh, to, to, to speak the gospel of life and to give ourselves for that cause. And there are ways of giving witness with all of the other sorts of pu public policy issues we have that may not be as immediately obvious as this one, but are nonetheless real. Could I pray for a moment before we do Q&A? Let me just pray that the Lord will take um, what we've talked about so far and that he'll help to get rid of the things that I've said that are unhelpful and to strengthen the things that are good and that he will work in and through this evening even in ways we might not have expected. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, we thank you for your goodness to us and... Uh, Father, you, you are the one who put us here in this country. And when we meet you, we'll meet you as Americans. And we will give account for our public witness, private, private and public witness, private deeds and public deeds, private thoughts and public thoughts, all of those things. And we pray that you will work in and through our time together this evening to accomplish in us what you will. Father, I pray that you take anything that I've said that's a, a, a bad application or unwise and that you just uh, t take it off the table and that you take uh, the things that please you and you put them to work uh, for your kingdom. Father, we pray it in the name of your Son. Amen. <clears throat>